From KVMR and in partnership with Freed, this is Disability Wrap. There certainly are a lot more opportunities and a lot more insight into the value that people with um, disabilities bring to their patients and their ability to relate to who they're caring for. Today, Dr. Michael Alexander on his career in medicine as someone with a significant physical disability. We should spend more time getting to know the person for whom we provide medical care learn more about them than we need to know about the disease that afflicts them. That's been my goal to help the medical community adjust to and look out for people with disabilities and impairments. That's all coming up on Disability Wrap. Stay tuned. Welcome to Disability Rap. I'm Carl Sigmund. With Lindsay Wells. Today we're joined by Dr. Michael Alexander, retired chief of rehabilitation services at the AI DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. Dr. Alexander has a long history at DuPont starting when he first set foot in the hospital as a patient at age 12 after contracting polio. As a teenager, he spent summers as an inpatient at the DuPont Hospital, forming relationships and community with other children with disabilities and with the doctors and nurses working there. With encouragement from the lead physician at DuPont, he decided to go to medical school at the University of Virginia and enter the emerging field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. After practicing in Ohio and Pennsylvania, Dr. Alexander returned to DuPont, now the Nemours Children's Hospital, as the Chief of Rehabilitative Medicine in 1986. He retired in 2013. Dr. Alexander is a leader in the field of pediatric rehabilitation. While at DuPont Hospital, he pioneered family-centered care, bringing families of children with disabilities into the discussions and planning of their medical care and rehab. He facilitated the transition at DuPont for mostly providing inpatient care to focusing on outpatients, providing children with disabilities and diseases the care and supports they need to live at home and participate fully in their community. Well, Dr. Alexander, welcome to Disability Rap. It is an honor to have you with us. And before we begin, I just want to note for our listeners that you were actually 
My pediatric rehab doctor. For 14 years. At the A.I. DuPont Hospital for Children. In Wilmington. It is great. To see you again. And thank you for coming on our show. I actually want to begin. With when you were in high school. You were at DuPont. With a group. Of other disabled children. And you really formed. A community with them. Around your disabilities. That I don't know. If that would happen today. In the same way. So I want to begin. By asking you. To reflect on that experience. And how it prepared. You for your career. Being a patient and at the DuPont Institute back in the 60s and 70s and into the, yeah, basically into early 80s, much be just before you started probably, was different. You were admitted, you um, were put on the ward, um, they provided your clothing for you, you were um, in a big room, uh, a ward, open room with 18 to 20 people in it around the walls. You were not going to see your parents, but once a month, it was called visiting Sunday. And uh, the only other time you saw your parents was the uh, day after you had surgery. So if you were there for eight months and had one operation, you saw your parents nine times in eight months. Uh, all the girls were on one side of the world and the boys were on a different ward on the other side of the hospital. Um, there was a, um, a courtyard between the two wards and it was downhill from the boys ward to the girls ward. So if you kicked the brakes off of your bed and one of the other boys gave you the right shove, you could play sort of um, shuffle and have your bed wind up closer to where the girls were. Um, it became a community because the uh, you tended to look out for for each other, particularly looking out for the the younger boys and girls. And um, the older kids were busy in in intrigue of 
of how to interact and catch up, meet up with girls. Um, it was not a, a community of um, of disabled issues. It was uh, hopefully a hotbed of uh, adolescent and pre-adolescent uh, behaviors. We uh, spent much of our time uh, figuring out how you could get a particular girl to be interested in you. Uh, there were ways to smuggle notes over to the girls and the, from the girls back to the boys. And um, it uh, was fun to trick the nurses and and make things happen that um, made their lives um, interesting, let's say. Thank you. In another interview, you said that you were growing up when you were growing up. You wanted to be a teacher, not a doctor, and that it was the head doctor at DuPont who encouraged you to pursue a career in medicine. Had you ever considered becoming a doctor before? And as someone with polio, what were the obstacles you faced at the time going through med school, your residency, etc.? Well, there were, I had thought about being a doctor when I was younger. And my dad had convinced me that physically I wasn't going to be able to do it. And then um, I thought perhaps I'd want to be a teacher. I belonged to um, FTA, Future Teachers of America, when I was in high school and was interested in that. Um, but I was talking to him and I told him, I, he said, what do you want to do when you graduate? And I said, I think I want to be a doctor. And he looked at me and he said, you think? Don't you know? What do you really want to do? And I said, I really want to be a doctor. And he said, well, then you can be. Why, why are you thinking, act thinking this way? At the time, I was a, a freshman in college. And um, he arranged for me to uh, spend that summer as a research assistant on a, on a project he was working on. And uh, on a genetics project that uh, Dr. Cal was working on. And um, I had he during the day, though, I was to follow his residents around, go to the OR, uh, go to the clinics, help put casts on and basically, uh, you know, live that life. And Saturdays we had I had to go to x-ray rounds. And so it, it was very much like being a, a, a junior uh, physician for a while there. Um, I did that and uh, I realized I could do it. Uh, then when I applied to medical school, I, I was lucky in that uh, at the University of Virginia, where I, I went to school, the provost for medical affairs and the dean of students for the School of Medicine had both had polio. One had had polio when he was a young man uh, you know, a teenager, and the other one had it while he was an intern. So he had gone all the way through um, his training and um, then had polio. So they, they had a different attitude towards me. And I have to admit the other thing that helped is I had a letter of recommendation from Dr. Shands, who was the first medical director at DuPont, who... Um, had a um, chair, an endowed chair at the University of Virginia. So 
to have a letter from him was very helpful when I had to go, when I got to go meet with the uh, um, people that were doing the admission. So they were interested in me. I was interested in them. Interestingly, a week later, before I had got my fi- my letter from them, I was at um, Medical College of Virginia, where I had a very nasty and rude uh, individual who interviewed me and pointed out I had polio and why why should they waste their money to train me to be a doctor when um, I might not practice as long as as other graduates and so um, they were they would confront you with that and then they were looking for you to have the spine to uh, speak back to them and uh, that would have been hard fortunately for me I had my letter from um, Virginia had just arrived that morning when I went down. And I politely, in a, in a more tactful way, um, pointed out to them that they were going to miss out on a really great doctor if they didn't take me and, you know, to hell with you. But I don't think I would have ever been that brave if I hadn't already heard from Charlottesville um, that I was accepted. I would have pushed the window a little bit, though. And I, I had other friends who had other medical conditions that interviewed um, that same year there in, in Richmond, and they were all treated rudely. One young lady with diabetes and uh, another young man that was very mild cerebral palsy. It was hardly affected him at all, and he was just devastated that they were so rude and callous towards him. How is the medical profession more inclusive of people with disabilities working in the field now than when you started? And what can the profession do better to be more inclusive and welcoming of people with disabilities? Well, there certainly are a lot more opportunities and a lot more insight into the value that people with um, disabilities bring um, to their patients and their ability to relate to who they're caring for. And it's just not physicians that want to do rehab. You know, it's pediatricians and OBGYNs. And and um, it um, has become um, easier. I've, I've counseled, I've, I counseled residents and students that were blind, that were deaf, that had uh, mobility impairments, quadriplegic. Um, I, I, over the years, I trained a couple doctors that were fairly significantly physically impaired, but mentally were sharp as tacks. And, and we worked on, spent a lot of time teaching them how to do a, a, a low touch neurologic exam and how to get as much information watching somebody as touching them. My expectation was always though that they had to figure out one way or the other to find out what they needed to know and um, give them the opportunity to to um, use that person's skills um, and observations to enhance what they were doing. Great. And this leads. Into my next question. I actually want to bring up of 
Two memories of you. When I was a patient of yours. And they both have to have to do with ableism. I think you're okay. If I say that when you work with me, you used a scooter. And that was all I knew. Dr. A was using a scooter. So I remember. One time. And this was. When I was quite young, you gave me a physical exam on the table, and I just remember being amazed. At how strong you were, you were knowing that you were knowing that you were using a scooter. scooter. So, that was my own. so that was my own. Ableism there. And then the second memory. I don't know what year what year it was. But for some reason my mom and I attended a lecture of yours. Or an event, or an event where, you, where were you were receiving an award. And all I remember, and all I remember was, that was that you got out of you. Got out of your scooter and walked up to the podium to give the talk or accept that award. And again, that was. So eye-opening for me, as a young kid, to see that, and so, 
I'm sure my experiences are not unique. Are not unique. So can you talk? A bit about your experience? With ableism. And then being a role model in that. There were many interesting times when that happened to me. I can remember working in an emergency room. I was doing a call there. And a man came in who, um, I, I don't even know what his problem was anymore. But he said he didn't want to see a crippled doctor. And I was the doctor that was there to see to see people that night. Uh, and um, the nurse said, what are you going to do? He doesn't want to see you. And I said, well, I guess you'll have to call some other doctor and tell him that this guy doesn't want to see me because I'm a um, crippled doctor. And she said, okay. So then she proceeded to call everybody that was working that night. And everybody says, well, if Dr. Alexander's not good enough for him, then none of us are good enough for him either. So the poor guy signed him out, signed himself out against medical advice and took off. Another example of sort of, um, I'd call it patronizing ableism, is when we moved to Virginia from Long Island, uh, in the eighth grade, I had been in an honors English class. But in the ninth grade, the, somebody decided that I should have all my classes on the first floor because I was crippled. And so um, they, they, all my classes were lined up. And the only English class they had um, on the first floor for freshmen was uh, remedial English. So for the ninth grade, I was in with a bunch of really nice, likable people, but they were um, kids that were behind in reading for any anything from neurologic issues uh, to you know truancy and behavioral issues, and I I, I turned it, it was interesting for me because one thing I learned how to hot wire a car uh, because I was sitting there um, with plenty of time on my hands, and uh, I remember one one girl wanted you know was having trouble, and I spent some time teaching her, but I did waste a year of um, English training uh, in school. And uh, to this day, I I still hate editing uh, papers because I don't think I see everything I should because I missed out on that. Um, but when I heard my honors um, geology course was on the second floor, nobody told me I couldn't go up the steps. So I just went up the steps to the lab and so I was taking my honor science course on the second floor, but somebody else had thought somewhere else that I had to be on the first floor to take remedial English because I couldn't handle the steps. So, um, and the other interesting thing was how my wife reacted once. Uh, uh, we were at a really nice restaurant in Georgetown, uh, out, you know, outside of Washington, D.C. there. And... Um, 
the waiter came in and, and uh, asked my wife uh, what she wanted, and she told him what she wanted. And then he looked at her, and she and he said, "Well, what does he want?" <laughs> and and my wife looked at him and gave him a grin and said, "You better ask him because he's paying for the dinner, and he'll be paying your tip." <laughs> so, um, yeah, that goes on around there, and I guess part of my philosophy and teaching early on was. Um, don't ever be intimidated by a question. So I, to some extent, when, when people would cross those bounds, I, I was able to tell them, you know, if you don't interact with me, you're going to miss out on one of the best rehab doctors that will ever come along. I mean, you have to, um, society isn't quite in it for you. And it, it is true that, uh, any number of people had to work a lot harder to, um, to, to get through what they did. But then it's interesting how different um, some people use it to compensate. Um, Judy Collins, famous folk singer, had polio and she had respiratory weakness. And so she was, um, she, she said she liked singing and her nurse or physical therapist said, well, that's great. Not only will you be making pretty music, but it'll be good for your lungs. And so, um, she, she uh, turned that cord. But some people just don't have the same quality uh, parent support, you know, advocate, mother advocate or father advocate. And um, they get kind of beat down, compartmentalized, and um, people uh, don't do it. I'll, I'll tell you one other quick story if I have time here. I ran a... Uh, when I was in, um, at Ohio State, I was given uh, a group of um, first-year medical students, and we were teaching them the romance of, of medicine. That was what we were supposed to do. And I was working at an uh, adult CP center there in Columbus, Ohio, and I had a, a couple of really neat adults um, who had uh, one gal had had spina bifida and uh, one gal had cerebral palsy, and I'm not sure what the other two did, but they were very open and very frank. And um, the one gal was very involved. She still lived with her mother. And um, I had brought the medical students in, and I, I told them I wanted them to do a biography of their patients. And, and, uh, and I assigned each adult to one medical student. And the uh, medical student said, I don't know how to do a biography. I still give you that crap. You graduated from college. You know what a biography is. I'm going to come back in a, two hours and you're going to tell me the story of Lindsay or Carl, or, you know, whoever they were doing. And um, I uh, came back at the end of the hour and they had been talking and um, what I had hoped would happen was really good. They had really bonded with the individuals that they were talking to and understood more about what was going on. And then I, I had a group discussion, but my group discussion was about sexuality of disabled adults. And um, I, uh, I, I turned to the one, one gal that um, was a dysarthric, had trouble talking and 
and had cerebral palsy. And I asked her about what happened the first time your mother caught you necking with your boyfriend. And uh, she told me, oh, it's terrible. Uh, she yelled at me. She shamed me. She made the boy go home. Uh, and, and, I, and I said, um, geez, how old are you now? And she said, 35. And I said, and I knew the answer to the question already because I was wanting to watch the medical student's reaction. She says, oh, well, that was two years ago. I said, so you were 33, you got caught making out with your boyfriend and your mother climbed all over you. And, and she said, yes, she did. And I said, how'd that work out? She says, well, when she got over it, it, it was okay. And um, then I talked to him about, um, I talked to the women. I asked both of them, had anybody ever, has anybody ever talked to you about birth control? And she said, no. I said, have you ever had a, a gynecologic exam? And they said, no. And so since this was an adult CP center and we had adjustable um, height exam tables, I immediately went out and, and um, contacted the GYN residency program uh, and asked them if they'd send over a doctor, you know, to let these, these poor ladies uh, get some reasonable care. So um you have to really be open to the idea that that just because you have an impairment that may disable you in one parameter it certainly doesn't um really cut out the fact that really you want to be writing notes to the girls and finding out what's going on uh, with other things and that you have political opinions and and issues so how how have you within the medical profession towards people with disabilities and inclusivity changed since your retirement 10 years ago? Well, we are much more accepting of them in the training programs. We uh, spend a lot more time trying to make them understand um, how society has viewed people with disabilities. I do a whole hour uh, lecture for medical students and residents uh, still, even at retired all these years, where we talk about um, how disabled children and the disabled in general have been treated through society. Talk a little bit about some of the issues able-bodied people have with being confronted by somebody who's different than they are. We talk about how the it was the the Greeks that began to think really if they weren't going to be productive as a human being, it, it was better to kill you. We uh, talked about the Romans. We talked about some of the really ab absurd phases this country went through. Uh, we had a period of time where we had what were called the ugly laws and people with um, disabilities were not supposed to be out in public on the streets because they didn't want to look at somebody that was disabled looking. And uh, not only what was that you're not allowed on the street, uh, it could be a $50 fine. And this was in, in 1800. And you, I'll remind you that 50 bucks was a lot of money in 1800. We're not talking about a little slap on the, on the wrist. This was a week's or more income that you could forfeit. 
for being out there and disabled. Uh, we went through a very um, beneficent mode where we were putting all these people away in institutions. Um, AI DuPont Institute is you, you started as a patient at. Well, that referred to the fact that for many, for years before, either you or I were there as patients. Um, they came there and they lived there for months and years and they were kind of helped to be out of the real world and not be cared for and don't let them be picked on by society. Um, we talked about uh, in this course, we the Nazis really perfected a lot of their techniques they used to kill the Jews on their pop, their disabled population first. Uh, they wiped out a whole generation of disabled children in the 30s and a, a whole generation of disabled adults um, before they opened a single death camp, as a matter of fact. Um, but I, I want the residents to understand that's been going on so that they can be attentive to the current trends that are out there again. Um, a, a big concern for me for the disabled population is the fact that um, assisted deaths or suicide or whatever you want to call it is being turned back to uh, tell people with disabilities that, you know, maybe the best thing you could do for your family is to kill yourself, make this stress go away. And unfortunately, some people believe that, that that in fact would be the right thing to do. Um, there's a fellow named Hawkins, who's a well-respected British ethicist who f just a few years ago told a mother who asked him, if I know my baby's going to have spina bifida, what should I do? And he gave her two pieces of advice. His first advice wa was that, well, do it, kill it, get rid of it. And then he, and then he added, though, and this is what worries me, he said, it's the ethical thing to do. I need, I, I want the, the generation of doctors to know uh, what's going on. And I think um, if that's ableism, then that's clearly, that's at its nasty extreme. But uh, in, in Europe, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, um, they're still um, euthanizing uh, children with disabilities. Uh, if the if the family wants to do that, and there have been a few Americans that have taken their own children over to Belgium to have that done for them. So mm -hmm. um, they need to understand the sort of the ethics of it. And I sort of finish up the lecture with reminding them that they took an oath, and that oath didn't say anything about offing your patients, but it's rather. Um, rather was to make sure that um, you looked out for your patients. There's a very famous physic Canadian physician, Osler, William Osler, who said that we should spend more time getting to know the person for whom we provide medical care, learn more about them than we need to know about the disease that afflicts them. And I think that that's always, that's been my goal to, help um, the medical community adjust to the, and, and look out for people with disabilities and impairments. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. A. 
What a grim history. And listening to you, I was reflecting that even in the that even in the independent living movement, where we work, where we work they, don't really they don't really talk about the historical euthanasia. Um, of people with disabilities. Horrifying. We are almost out of time. But I did want to ask. How is retirement? And and do I remember that you were that you were part of a jazz band? Or am I making that Or am I making that up? No, it wasn't a jazz band, but I, I did I, I sang with a New York chorale, which is a um uh, a choral group, and I've done that for years. And um, in fact, we're doing a our Christmas concert on um, Saturday. I canter at church, which means I lead the music and and do the um, the uh, psalm and the acclamation in the Catholic Church. You're, you're standing up there in front and and leading that. While there may or may not be a choir somewhere else in the church, I still uh, teach this medical pediatric rehab course um, once a week, and um, I try to make sure every resident student gets this hour lecture on um, disabled children and society. And I'm active in in the state medical society and on the church's finance board and. But my real joy is I'm an assistant babysitter to two grandchildren three days a week. Uh, and we have uh, uh, Nikki and uh, Lily. And uh, I think my daughter's finally through making babies. But since I retired, I've gotten to go through four sets of babies, you know, watching them from when they were less less than a year old up until they they started regular school. So. I have a lot going on. Uh, probably what I resent the most is that um, Medicare is pretty crappy when it comes to um, meeting some of the needs you have as a um, disabled adult. Um, I now use a power wheelchair, and I can't believe how long it's taking to get a new battery. And quite honestly, um, I could afford a new battery. I mean, I I could go out and buy one, but I'm I'm just doing the experiment to see how long they're gonna they're drag this out. But it's incredible. 
they come out, they say, yep, your battery's not working. It's not holding the charge. And uh, I said, well, when are you going to replace it? Well, we have to, first we send it out for a bid and then we have to get approval and then we have to get your doctor to sign it. And then you call up and you say, well, your doctor hasn't signed it. I say, well, why can't you let me know that my doctor hasn't signed it? And I'll call him up and I'll light a fire under. And hell, while we're at it, I'm a retired doctor. Why can't I just write my own prescription? And they said, oh, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed to write your own prescriptions. I said, no, that's only for narcotics. <laughs> we're not allowed to write our own prescriptions. Well, no, we can't mm -hmm. let you do that. And uh, I rant and rave about that, but it, it's a it's a difficult, a lot of issues. Transportation systems. You guys are lucky you're in California. It really sucks back uh, east and at this time of year for if you were waiting for something. And again, I earned enough and I was frugal enough to plan for this that I have backups, luxuries that other people don't have. I mean, I picked up a spare power wheelchair just so that I wouldn't be at the mercy of some clerk at a at the company. And I have, you know, bought my own accessible van. And uh, but it's really tough if you um, to, to do a lot of this stuff on your own. Um, Medicare still will not approve a power wheelchair if you only need it really to get out of your house and go places. They want you to have to need it in the house before they want to fund it. You, you know, you could say, well, gee, I'd like to be able to go to church, go to the library, go to the 7-Eleven. No, you don't need to do that. But we'll get you one if you need it to get from your bed to your toilet. So it's uh, still a lot, a lot of stuff that needs to be worked on. And I want the residents to understand that too. Uh, disability parking, it's just crazy world. I have a ramp that lets down out of my car and uh, have a sign on the side of the car that says, please don't block me in. Leave me that hash mark area there to put my ramp down. People routinely do it. The last time it happened, the left. It was, I was waiting for the guy to come and it was down to two of us um, there, you know, and everybody else had gone home and here's this idiot's car still blocking mine. Now, if it had been, again, if it had been cold or something, I, I could have solved it differently. I, I've delighted in having the police come and move my car for me and while they're there, write them a ticket. But I really wanted to see who this idiot was, but I, I'll never know. Well, Dr. A, thank you. thank you so much. My pleasure. You're welcome. That was Dr. Michael Alexander, retired Chief of Rehabilitation Services at the Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. And that does it for the show. Disability Rap is produced and edited by Carl Sigmund and Courtney Williams. You can go to our website, disabilityrap.org, to listen to past shows, read transcripts, and subscribe to the Disability Rap podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast by searching Disability Rap on any of the major podcast platforms. We are brought to you by KVMR in partnership 
with Freed and were distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Lindsay Wells with Carl Sigmund for another edition of Disability Wrap.